Now let's turn in the Scriptures to the first chapter of John's Gospel, uh, where we've been studying recently, John chapter 1, and this evening we're going to read the first five verses. John's Gospel chapter 1, verses 1 to 5, and if you're using the church Bible, it's on page 1063. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now, this uh, series on which we've embarked uh, has had a rather strange history since the beginning. Uh, when I walked in a few Sundays ago, I thought it was a series on John's Gospel. Uh, when I walked out that Sunday, I thought it had become a series on the prologue to John's Gospel, since we just got through the first few words, and then those of you who were here last Sunday, we discovered it was uh, Pentecost Sunday, and so we were diverted, I hope, by what John Calvin calls a secret instinct of the Spirit to think about Acts chapter 2, and now uh, we're back again here to uh, John chapter 1 and to verses 4 and 5. In Him, that is, in the Logos, in the Word, it's so interesting, isn't it, that John doesn't actually identify who the Logos is until much later on in the passage. We know, because we read the passage before, uh, but he, he keeps back the actual identity of the Logos until uh, much later on when he tells us that grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And these verses 4 and 5, um, well, they're kind of obvious, aren't they? Uh, there are no difficult words in verses 4 and 5, and uh, we all know what they mean, uh, and so we, we tend to skip over to verse 6. And reflecting on these verses, it dawned on me um, that I don't think I've ever heard a sermon exclusively on John chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. Now, those of you who have a cynical bent are thinking most of the sermons you have heard, Ferguson, are the ones you preached yourself, so you can point your finger at yourself. But I think when we read John chapter 1, uh, sometimes at Christmas time, at other times, then these words seem so obvious that we tend to skip over them. They don't seem to be saying anything of tremendous moment. And as I say, there are no difficult words. In Him was life. That's obvious. The life was the light of men. That's obvious. The light shines in the darkness. That's obvious. And the darkness has not overcome it or understood it or perhaps mastered it. And I say it seems fairly clear what they mean until somebody says to you, well, what do these words actually mean? What's he talking about when he speaks about 
in the Logos was life. And how is the Logos, who is life, the light of man? I mean, isn't that the kind of thing that we usually associate with becoming a Christian, that you see the light? Is he saying that all men are Christians? The light shines in the darkness. What does he mean that the darkness has not mastered it, uh, either understood it or, or overcome it? So, it really is worth, I think, pausing to reflect particularly on these words in John chapter 1, because they seem to be so simple, and yet knowing John as we do, at least from the first three verses, uh, nothing he says is superficial. And as we noted right at the beginning, uh, this is a prologue in which he's he's throwing out to us some of the themes that he's going to take up in the rest of the gospel, and therefore, in a sense, it's going to take him another 20 chapters and more to help us fully sense what it means that the Logos was life, and the life was light, and the light shines in darkness. And, and what does he mean by saying that the darkness has, has not mastered it. Uh, later on in uh, John's gospel, you remember in the upper room in John chapter 13, uh, John is leaning back onto Jesus. Um, similar language to the language that's used later on about the Logos, Christ being in the bosom of the Father. And when he's leaning back into Jesus, uh, who has just said, one of you is going to betray me, uh, John's question is, who is he? But here, when he's thinking about Jesus, the Logos, leaning back into the bosom of the Father, the Son, he says later on in verse 18, who is at the Father's side, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has made him known. He, he isn't asking Jesus, who is he? He's really asking Jesus, who are you? And as he's reflected on who Jesus is, he, he is saying Jesus is the Logos. Jesus is the, the Word who brought creation into being. And Jesus is also the Logos in the sense that Jesus is the one who unveils the truth about God, because this word Logos that He uses, as you probably know, was a very big word in the, the Hellenistic philosophy of the world into which John was preaching the gospel. And it means everything from the kind of words that we speak to more fundamentally the, the reasoning processes, the, the inner logic that lies behind the words that we speak. And when he says, therefore, that Jesus is the Logos, he is really, he's really wanting to say, if you want to get to the foundation of everything, then you need to dig down and understand who Jesus is. And it's in that context, I think, that he's trying to unpack for us, unfold for us what it means 
that Jesus was the Logos. In Him was life. The light was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And I think the, the key to understanding what, what John is saying here about the Logos, about Christ, is this, that everything he is saying here is true prior to and apart from the Incarnation. Everything he's saying here about Jesus Christ, the Logos, is true of him prior to the Incarnation and apart from the Incarnation. So, at this stage, you can see he's working from eternity into history. Uh, in eternity, the Word was with God. Uh, the Word is the one who brings creation into being. The Word is the one who upholds all things. And later on, he's going to say, and the Word, the Logos, became flesh. But he's mounting up towards that, even the little parenthesis that you would see that goes from verse 6 to verse 8 kind of leads us further on. He's building up to the moment of the incarnation. He's saying that because the Logos was going to become flesh, it was appropriate that somebody would announce that he was coming. And so, John the Baptist appears on the scene, a man sent from God who bears witness about the light, although he himself is not the light. So, I think the best way to understand these words, and it would be fair to say not everybody thinks this is the best way to understand these words, but it seems to me to be the best way to understand these words, is that all that he is saying here is true of the one we know as Jesus Christ before the Word was made flesh. In Him was life, that life was the light of men, that light shone in the darkness and continues to shine in the darkness, and the darkness has never managed to master it. So, let's try and look together at these four statements that John makes here about the Lord Jesus. First of all, uh, just notice the kind of general uh, pattern of what he's saying. He begins with the Logos, and then he ends with uh, what looks like incomprehension. The, the darkness was not able to, to grasp, to, to understand, to, to master the light. Um, and it really, it really is a very subtle indication to us that without a center in the Logos, without a center in Christ, actually everything begins to disintegrate. Um, it's very interesting to me to see that very serious thinkers today, now, recognize that without this, there is no sense to the world. I mean, people go about their daily business assuming that this world makes sense, because after all, we are modern scientific people, aren't we? But modern scientific people who are not anchored in the Logos simply tell us 
The, the world is just a series of chemical reactions at various levels. It doesn't actually have any meaning in itself. Your life doesn't have any meaning. Your decisions are simply chemical reactions. That's the alternative to there being a personal, reasoning, reasonable foundation to the world in which we live. And of course, the point that needs to be pressed on people who are serious unbelievers in a scientific age is, as somebody said about David Hume, the famous Scottish philosopher, the moment you step out of the door, the moment you step out of your laboratory, you have to stop thinking about that. Because your love of great music is just a bundle of chemical reactions. Your love for your wife is just a bundle of chemical reactions. The sense you have that there is design in the universe, it's, uh, it's just a figment of your imagination. There is no design in the universe. In its very nature, design implies being designed. It implies a cause and effect that is rational and reasonable. And it's, it's kind of interesting then to me, that John is speaking into a, Hellenist, a world of Hellenistic philosophy in which he's saying, if you don't start with the logos, then you end up with a logos, with non-logos. If you don't start with the divine logic, you end up saying nothing is actually logical because for something to be logical, there needs to be coherence in the universe. And all there is in the universe is this extraordinary accident, which the statisticians tell us is an accident of phenomenal proportions, phenomenal proportions that we exist. But if we are simply an accident, then we just happened. There is no rational, personal cause. We imagine ourselves to be living, thinking, loving human beings, but uh, actually we take ourselves seriously. All we are is a bunch of chemical reactions. That's all we are. And the great scientists of our time are saying exactly that, exactly that. Except, as I say, as soon as they step out of their scientific papers or their popular publications, they are incapable of living like that. Because it, the truth of the matter is, if this is a personally created universe, in order to live in it in any coherent way, you've got to steal from that notion in order to function in it. And it's into this world that John is speaking these extraordinary words about Christ. First of all, that in Him was life. Now, that isn't the same as John saying, Jesus gives us life. That's true. That's not even the same as John saying, Jesus is the author of life. What John is actually saying is that the Logos is in himself life. And of course, this is against the background of what he's just said. He's, 
He has encouraged us to go in our imagination to a place uh, before our history, before the creation of the world, to try to imagine a, a, a time when there was no time, a space when there was no space, a nothing that really was no thing. And there in the beginning is the Logos and the Father. There in the beginning is the, is the Holy Trinity. And in the Logos, life exists. And He is therefore the source and the cause of all life that there is. And, and the way He puts it is not that He has life, but he has life in himself. Actually, much later on in, in the Gospels, uh, the same idea will be emerging in John chapter 8, this relationship between, between light and life, when Jesus says, I am the light of the world. But you remember later on in John's Gospel, in the controversy with the Pharisees, he makes this amazing statement. He says, before Abraham was, I am and clearly, he's alluding, isn't he, to the divine name in the Old Testament, Yahweh, and to Moses' encounter with God when Moses said to him, well, who am I going to say is sending me? And, and the Lord says, just tell them I am is sending you. Um, I am. Uh, you can say I am, but you can only say I am because you came to be. You can only say, I am, because you were given life. You didn't create your own life. In that sense, you don't have life in yourself. You have life that has been drawn from others, but not so the Logos. The Logos has life in himself. Um, and of course, this is, this is a truth that brings great consolation to the believer and great irritation to the unbeliever because the unbeliever doesn't have life in himself or herself. And it's really saying that uh, he is altogether different from the way we are. He simply is. He is without cause. He is, as the old philosophers used to say, the uncaused, cause of all things. He is the beginning. He is the alpha as well as the omega. And he's saying in the beginning, the Logos who was with God and was God had life in himself. Life in himself. Our life comes into being amazing. And then our life physically comes to an end. Our life is dependent. No one, no one brings himself or herself into being. But this is one who needed none other to bring him into being because he has life in himself. And you sense that, you know, this was a very, I thought this was a very simple statement, but what John is saying to us is, here we are touching the ultimate mystery of the universe. 
but thank God that this mystery is revealed to us in the coming of Jesus Christ. And we learn that the origin of the universe is not in the last analysis some uh, big bang, but it's a person. I don't recommend this as a mind experiment, but you see, if this universe doesn't originate in a person, our idea of what a person is begins to disintegrate because all we are truly is a, a bundle of chemical reactions. Somehow or another, over the course of the years, kind of clambering out of the primeval slime, we have kind of created this illusion that we, we are persons, but we're, it's, a, it's a word without any real significance. Um, we're no more persons than the flies that fly around. Our, our responses to one another, uh, they're, no, they're no different from the responses of the birds. They're just chemical reactions. But to know that the origin of the universe is found in a personal one who has life in himself, that gives you stability. And the other thing it does it. It makes it a wonderful thing to understand that your person-to-person -person relationships really do have meaning, that they're not just uncontrolled and uncontrollable and predetermined chemical reactions. I mean, we do need to understand that that's where secular science brings us, that we are predetermined bundles of chemical reactions. And it's not just that Christian critics are saying this. What our scientists are telling us, except, as I say, as soon as they get into their car and go home and embrace their wife and put on their favorite music, they can no longer live with that presupposition, and they have got to steal from what John is saying here, even if in their ignorance they don't know what John is saying here, they have to steal from it. So John is really saying something very profound to us when he says that in the Logos was life. But then he adds this, this life, that is the Logos, was the light of men. Now, what does he mean by that? This Logos was the light of men. Later on, you'll notice he says, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. So later on, John 8, 12, you'll say, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but of the light of life. And he's inviting us to come to him in order to be saved. But that's not what this is saying. What this is saying is that the Logos is the one who gives the light to the created order that makes the created order a luminous revelation of the being of God. In him was life, and that life was the light of men, of all men. So, this is not the Logos being your light in terms of being your Savior. 
This is the Logos being the light who shines upon all men in all that He has created, the way in which the created order is luminous of the identity of the Creator. This is John's form of what we've been seeing in Romans chapter 1, Paul says about the created order, that the attributes of God are clearly seen in the things that have been made, or perhaps better, are clearly visible in the things that have been made. And that's common biblical teaching, isn't it? The heavens declare the glory of God, says the psalmist. Uh, Isaiah chapter 6, the whole earth is full of your glory. There is light everywhere that reveals the being of God, and it's obvious. But it's, John needs to explain this in a little detail, and we'll come to that, but it, it's obvious if we know the Creator. It's very obvious. Uh, did anyone phone you today? Any of you get a phone call today? You picked up the receiver or pulled your phone out you. How long did it take you to recognize the person who was phoning you? Now, they may have been wanting to sell you something, and you didn't recognize the voice. But it is a phenomenon, isn't it? That it is, it's almost instantaneous, despite the number of voices and accents they are, that almost always we can identify somebody we know who is phoning us out of the thousands of people most of us know, we know almost instantaneously if we know the person. It's obvious. But if you don't know the person, it's not at all obvious. Now, that's the kind of point that John is making. If you know the Creator, you recognize His handiwork. It shows his character. Uh, if you have any knowledge of literature, somebody puts down a, a passage of literature before you, and if you, if you are familiar with the author's works, then you, you recognize the author's style. I remember reading something that a student had written for me, a doctoral student. His, lang his native language is not English, and at the beginning of his paper, his native language was obviously not English. When he got to the middle, I came to a passage, and I thought, that's rather well put. And then I thought, that's not only rather well put, but it's in, it's in elegant English. Then I thought, that's not only elegant English, but that's actually the way I would write it. And then I thought, that is the way I wrote it. Now, we may come to these things slowly. Um, and I know forgeries are possible, but if you've any knowledge of art and artists or music and musicians, um, songs, I mean, those of you who love popular songs, how long does it take you to recognize? I used to go to a seminary with a, a, a close friend, and we would listen to a radio station in which they didn't announce the songs they were playing uh, until, you know, half an hour later, and uh, the two of us, we would sit, we'd work our way through the songs, no words, we would just, we would, we would know. And this is what John is saying. Um, you see, the unbeliever says, 
God has not made himself clear. But you remember what Paul says. What Paul says is, God has made himself perfectly clear. The problem is you are resisting the clarity. And you remember how in Romans 1, he uses all these strong verbs about the, about the way in which you've got to fight against the revelation of God in order to deny it. And at the end of the day, you've got to barter and exchange. So, John is saying the light that shines, shines on, on everyone. God's revelation of His power, His eternity, His providential watch care, His goodness, His provision. It's all evident in the things that, has been, that have been made. Of course, it's evident in the things that have been made because He has made them. And you know, this is an important thing because as evangelical Christians, we have a tendency to say to people, you'll never reason yourself to God, and that's obviously true. And a tendency to say, nothing in all creation is going to save you. Only Jesus Christ can save you. But we shouldn't make the mistake that often people make of thinking that God's revelation and creation is unclear. And I say that because it's God's revelation. And He has this tendency to make everything clear. You ever been in the embarrassing situation where you're the only person in the room who didn't recognize the tune or who the artist was or been stupid enough to say that was beautifully played when it was all out of tune and you've shown yourself up because the problem has not been out there. The problem has been in here. And this is the force of what John is saying, and I think that becomes evident by the next statement he makes. In the Logos was life, that life was the light of men, and then he says, the light is shining in the darkness. The light is shining in the darkness. So, it's not that there is no light. That's not the reason people don't believe and pursue and worship and trust. The problem is the light is shining in the darkness. And the deepest problem is that the darkness is within. And see, that's where people get confused. So if only God had made it clear, then I would see it but not if you're blind. And that's what John is going on throughout his gospel to say. You remember how he brings this out so strikingly in the conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus when Jesus says, now Nicodemus, unless you're born again, you'll not be able to see the kingdom of God because you're blind. And Nicodemus' response, I mean, he almost says it is, but how can that be, Jesus, since I can't see that? How can it be that I'm blind when I can't see? And this is what John is 
beginning to unravel here, that the, the light shines in the darkness. And to Jesus' contemporaries, John contemporaries, darkness was darkness. If you've lived in Dundee all your life, unless you've got up in the middle of the night when there's been a, a blackout of some kind, you've never actually seen the darkness. You need to, you need to live somewhere rural to see darkness, don't you? If you live somewhere rural, then you may have gone out in the dark and put your hand right up to your nose and not been able to see that hand. That's darkness. Cities always give out light. But this is spoken into uh, rural communities where darkness really is darkness, where you cannot see anything, and yet there is this light shining, and, and that's the thing you see. If you're in the darkness and there is a light shining, um, you don't really know what that light is, do you? A light can be shining in the darkness and you have no idea what that light is because you're in the darkness. And out of the darkness, you can't see. And you don't actually see until what happens, until the light becomes, comes near enough to you for you yourself to be exposed by that light so that you can see where that light is coming from. And John is going to give us all kinds of illustrations in the gospel. I'm not saying this is a series on John's gospel any longer. I have no confidence in saying that anymore. But he's going in his gospel to give all kinds of illustrations of people who were in the darkness until the light came near enough to show them who they were and that they had been in the darkness and give them enough light to see what the source of the light was. And this is what John is saying here. He's setting us up for all these stories he's going to tell later on in his gospel, that the light shone in the darkness. Remember how Jesus puts it? Um, because this is a spiritual darkness, isn't it? And we're in an age when so many people still today will say, well, I'm not religious and I'm not Christian, but I'm a very spiritual person. I'm a very spiritual person. Of course, you're a very spiritual person because God has made you a very spiritual person. But being a spiritual person can so easily deceive you because as Jesus says, if the light that is in you, I'm a very spiritual person, is itself darkness, how great is that darkness? And that's where we are, isn't it? That's where men and women are, young people are, with, without the light of the world. We, we depend on ourselves. We have our own light. We know so much better. You, you tell somebody that you're a Christian, this is my experience. Even telling people that you've live in an academic environment and that you teach Christian theology, they start giving you lectures, don't they? They know so much more because they're right. They're absolutely sure they are in the light. But Jesus says it's possible for the light that's in us to be darkness. And if that's the case, I mean, just think of it. If what I regard as light within me is actually darkness, then of course how great that darkness is. What a perilous situation I'm in that I've actually confused 
the darkness with the light. Remember uh, C.S. Lewis's lovely illustration of this? Well, it's not really so lovely in the dwarfs and the caves, you see, and all this, this wonderful, the old shed, is it the shed? All this wonderful food, and they're saying, this is disgusting. This is absolutely disgusting. Why are they feeding us this kind of thing? when it's actually delicious and it never crosses their minds. The problem is not the food. The problem is my inability to taste the food. And that's the situation, isn't it? Um, and this is the testimony of all those who, who come into the light out of the darkness. We all want to say, I once was blind, but now I see. I found the things of God tasteless, perhaps even disgusting to me. But now I've tasted and I've seen that the Lord is good. And so what what John is saying about Jesus is that the Logos was life, and the life was the light of man, but the light of man in all that he has been revealing in the created order has been shining into the darkness, and because in the darkness men and women have exchanged the truth of God for the lie and exchanged the way of God for the way of the flesh, they think they're walking in the light, but they're actually walking in the darkness. And it's only when the light of Christ comes near, and then it exposes the darkness. And this is why John will say in John chapter 3 famously, and the tragedy is that men preferred the darkness to the light because their deeds were evil. They preferred the darkness to the light. It's just like uh, Paul says at the end of Romans 1, isn't it? That when people, when people make this great exchange of the lie for the truth, what do they end up doing? They end up having to bolster their position by encouraging other people to do the same. It's one of the ways in which in our culture, the, the restraint that was created by the Christianizing of the Western world, that restraint is all gone now. So, what do you have? What do you have? You have people saying, look at us. We are blatantly turning over those old ways, and nothing you spoke about, the judgment of God falling on us. There's no bolts of thunder coming to strike us down. You remember what Paul says in Romans 1, the way in which the wrath of God is revealed in the present age is by God saying what Lewis, I think, calls the most terrible words in the universe, your will be done. So, God gives them up. That's all He does. He just gives them up. He says, if you want to rebel against me in that way, if you are determined to make that exchange, then have your own way your will be done on earth. And you see, there is such blindness that instead of understanding this is the judgment of God upon me, that judgment of God is called my freedom. 
but the evidence that it's the judgment of God lies in what Paul says at the end of Romans 1, isn't it? That in order to boast, bolster your position, you've got to draw others in. Isn't that what's happening in our own day? Um, of course, what was said, I'm thinking especially about sexual and gender matters. It was just, we, we want equality. No, human, fallen human beings don't want equality. Fallen human beings want mastery. And so we want to draw everyone in. We want to draw everyone in. I mean, this isn't a matter of saying, let's take scientific texts, tests to see what we actually are biologically. No, this is throwing over the light of God that He has built into our very being. In order to bolster yourself, you've got to have as many people on your side as possible. But it's the darkness. And if the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? Well, my friends, it's not that God's way is oblique or opaque. It's not that He has failed to make Himself clear. I mean, that, that is as that is as foolish as somebody standing in front of a Rembrandt painting, seeing the light coming out onto Rembrandt's mother's face from the Bible that she's reading and saying, you know, if only Rembrandt had put up a big sign here that said, Rembrandt painted this, it would be clear. For anyone with eyes to see, it's clear. And that brings them to the fourth statement. In the Logos was life. The life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. Now, I don't know what the... You may have an NIV there. There's more than one NIV. I think the NIV has probably changed its translation. And the, the difficulties in the translation are because the verb that John uses here can mean either master something in the sense of understanding it or in the sense of overtaking it and destroying it. And it's just possible, I mean, it's more than just possible, because as, as, as you go on reading through John's gospel, you begin to get the sense that John kind of likes uh, what we call double entendres, you know, I mean, some people just like speaking that way, don't they? Like, they, they like to say things, and you think, well, does he mean this or does he mean this? And sometimes he or she means both. And it may be here John actually means us to reflect on both, that on the one hand, the darkness can't grasp it. And that's the truth of the matter, isn't it? Um, you know, as we often say, um, you ask some of the most intelligent people you know to tell you what the Christian gospel is, and they have no idea. They, they can't understand it. And even those of us who may have read the gospel for years, we couldn't grasp it. 
Some of you know, I I read the Bible for five years without grasping it. I read the Bible for five years thinking the Bible was telling me to be better. And for I read it was a gift, I didn't grasp it. And uh, that's true, isn't it? The, The revelation of God in creation is there, His eternal power and deity. As Paul says, it's it's all there, obvious for us to see, but by nature we don't grasp it. It doesn't make an impact on us. Um, it's like people I used to know. I, be- I became a Christian out of a, a world in which golf was playing my I- was my idol. I played twenty rounds a week when I was a teenager. I was just absolutely absorbed with, devoted to playing golf, and. I- I remember people saying to me after I was converted, I can worship God on the golf course just as easily as you can in the church. And, you know, I slowly learned to say, you know, waiting, you know, taking a step back in case I was punched. When did you last do that? When did you last find your ball in a sand trap and kneel down in prayer and say, oh, Lord, I'm so grateful to you that my ball is in a sand trap? You're such a wonderful creator that you've made men able to invent this fabulous game called golf. Invented, as they say, by Scottish Calvinists so you could have a good time without actually enjoying yourself. (laughs) But it's true, isn't it? You see, um, you just don't get it. And you explain the gospel. It's heartbreaking. Some you explain the gospel, and it seems they're absolutely fascinated by it. And then they say, "You know, I'm, thanks so much. I'm really going to try harder now." Sometimes super intelligent people. Why is it? It's because the darkness is not merely intellectual, although it is intellectual. It's spiritual. It's an inability to grasp what is there because you're dead spiritually and you're blind spiritually. And so the darkness, the darkness, the darkness just doesn't get it. Uh, but John probably also means something else, doesn't he? But the darkness can never put the light out. That's a great hope, isn't it? That is such a steadying thing to know as a Christian believer. As the darkness seeks to engulf the light of the gospel, it can never ever extinguish it. Why? Because at the end of the day, darkness leads to death. No light, no life. And light will always lead to life. And so these words that, at least speaking for myself, maybe you're just very different from me, and when you've read these words in John's gospel, you've thought I've got to give a lot of attention to them, but speaking for myself, I've often simply passed them over in order to get, as it were, to the meat of the passage. A dozen years ago, I was flying from speaking at a conference in the northern United States to Glasgow in order to go to the Keswick Convention. And uh, as my uh, friends uh, put me 
on the first trip, part of my trip, they, they said to me, we're really praying for you that you'll be bumped up because we know you have a busy week next week as well. And sure enough, as, you know, as I went through the line in Chicago, they tore up my ticket. Change of seat. They're very cautious about the way they tell you, by the way, you're going to be flying at the front of the plane tonight. And I look at, I'm, you know, I'm about to say, but I chose my seat. And then, then I see the magic numbers for the front. And so I'm flying there at the front thinking, this is marvelous. Had four hours sleep, never had four hours sleep in a transatlantic flight before. It's absolutely fantastic. And you know, the people who are up there, so happened there were two men, one there, one there. And I don't know who they were, but they were used to traveling at the front of the plane. So they were not in my category. They were somewhere higher up the totem pole. They were both scientists. And from the, the, the passing conversation as they put things away, I realized they were not only scientists, they were scientists going to something very special. And in that something very special, they were something very special. And as I woke up in the morning, the, the man here was, he was obviously giving a presentation and there were the, the hard copies of his, of his PowerPoint. I have to say that there was a beauty, a symmetry, a, what I would have called a design and almost a poetry. In, I don't know what it was, but he was going to show them what it was. It was magnificent in its beauty. It was stunning. And then as they got off the plane, this, the other man who seemed a gentler kind uh, said something about a vote they were going to take. And this man who had been looking at these beautiful designs snapped at him, snapped at him with a, an anger that did not befit the front of the plane. No, we'll not vote that way, he said. Otherwise, we'll let the intelligent design people in. And I thought two things to myself. One was, here you are, some kind of mega scientific brain. And when I woke up in the morning, you were staring at something that was just like the most beautiful design I'd ever seen. And you didn't see it was a design. But that was only part of the thing. The other part of the thing was if there's no design, if there's no God, if you're a rational scientist, if you think about things calmly on the basis of the evidence, why are you so angry? Why are you so angry? I think I've told you before, it came back to my mind because Yevgeny Yevtushenko died a few weeks ago. Did you read his obituary? Yevgeny Yevtushenko. I would have had no idea who Yevgeny Yevtushenko was. He would draw thousands of people to his poetry readings in Russia in the day. On occasion, as uh, he met Sir Kingsley Amos, famous British English novelist. And at Kingsley Amos's memorial service, Martin Amos, his son, said, when Yevgeny Yevtushenko, a Russian poet, playwright, novelist, met Sir Kingsley Amos in the days of the Cold War, he said to him with surprise, I thought all you British people were Christians, but I hear, Sir Kingsley, that you are an atheist like me. 
Yevgeny Yevtushenko, atheist, like me. And the suave, urban Sir Kingsley Amos said to Yevtushenko, yes, it's true, he said, but it's more than that. You see, I hate him. You know what happened at the memorial service? Everybody started laughing. Why did they start laughing? Because of how ludicrous it was to say you hated a God you professed not to believe existed. Some of them were laughing at themselves. So this is a stunning statement and a great encouragement to us. Not least because, in a sense, the secret of the whole of John's gospel is that John, who describes himself as the disciple Jesus loved, not because he was excluding others, but because I think that was what struck him most about himself. I've been loved by Jesus. That the disciple Jesus loved was able to lie back at Jesus' side and know he was lying back at the side of the one who was lying back at the side of the Father. He was that close to the creator of the universe. And so are you if you're a Christian believer. Our Heavenly Father, We confess again that John takes us to places where we know that even as, as young Christians the, that we can, we can paddle here, but also to places where we all feel out of our depth, words that we struggle to express the depths of what they mean. And yet, the more we dig down, the more wonderful it seems to us that we who are, not many of us are wise, not many of us are mighty, as your word tells us. None of us well known in the world or well esteemed in the world. And yet you have esteemed us, giving us your son and helping us to see there is meaning in our lives and in the cosmos and knowing that we walk in the light as he is in the light. And as a result, we, although we come from different places, different cultural backgrounds, different social strata, we, are, we recognize each other as the children of God because we all call you our Father and the Lord Jesus our Savior. Oh, give us confidence, we pray, in the gospel and help us to lean back on our Lord Jesus, knowing that he is leaning back on our heavenly Father and that we are safe and secure, that life has meaning and purpose and indeed glory because we know and trust him. Hear us, we pray in Jesus' name.